0: John chapter 21, I just don't want to stop with John. And I know there are many of you saying, yeah, but Axe, Rick, Axe, I get it. I just want to be where Jesus is. And the Gospels make that easy. Well, we're in chapter 21, verse 1, after these things... It's a favorite phrase of John's. He will use it a lot. He uses it very effectively, very importantly in the book of Revelation. But we're going to hold off on that. After these things, Jesus manifested Himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Lord Jesus, would You manifest Yourself to us here tonight? Not just that we would see or hear information about You, but that we would see You. That you would light up in our hearts. And you would be made manifest to us in in faith and in person, Lord. Because as I said earlier, we are not playing at this thing. This is not a game. This is not a a social club, Lord. This is not a tradition with us. This is not a lifestyle. It is not a, a, a social group. This is eternity to us. This is personal. This is why we are on this planet, why we were given the breath of life in the first place. And so, Lord Jesus, manifest Yourself to us. Here tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Epilogue. The Sea of Tiberias. That's the Roman name for the Sea of Galilee, Lake Caneret. In keeping with His promise through Mary, on that Resurrection Sunday, Jesus now meets them in the Galilee By the sea. Understand as we open up to John chapter 21, we've already had a conclusion of sorts at the end of John chapter 20 where John writes, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Period. Put the pen down. Done. But at some point, not long after the completion of the Gospel according to John, the Holy Spirit said, "Uh, John, you forgot one. There's one more story you need to tell. And so John adds this epilogue. How do you know, Rick? Well, because it, it reads like an epilogue. Because he's already given a beautiful conclusion at the end of chapter 20. Now, it's the same writing of John. It's the same word usage of John. We know that this is John. And we don't know if John stopped and went away and got a Coke and then came back and went, Nah, you know, i got to add that. Or if it was a few weeks or, or, or a couple or three years later that he came back to it and, and put this back in. We do know that the earliest manuscripts we have of the Gospel of John have all 21 chapters. So there isn't a copy out there that doesn't have the epilogue. I'm telling you all that just to say this is absolutely intentional on the part of John. And it is so valuable, and I think, what would the gospel be like without this? You know, what would happen is we would open up the first chapter of the book of Acts, and we would wonder how in the world Peter got to where he was. It it wouldn't make any sense. He goes from the denial of Jesus to then seeing Jesus resurrected, but dumbfounded by it, and the next scene, he's waiting in Jerusalem for power to come from on high. How do you go from A to Z in such a short amount of time? Well, Jesus knew Peter needed a little bit more. So we have the epilogue, Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee, Lake Canaria, there by the sea. This is now the third resurrection appearance of Jesus. There would be many. How many we don't rightly know? We can kind of guesstimate a little bit, but there were multiple appearances of Jesus after his resurrection, not just on Resurrection Sunday, not just a week later. That's the second appearance. Remember what what Jesus said to Mary. He, He said in Matthew 28, verse 10, Do not be afraid. Go, take the word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. He says that on Sunday morning. Sunday evening, He shows up where they are. He just can't wait. You really get the feeling like Jesus is just so excited to see the guys. And to get this ball rolling... That He doesn't just head for the Galilee and wait for them there. He goes right to them in that locked-in, shut-up room there in Jerusalem. Because I believe He just couldn't wait to see them. Well, you know, someone wasn't there. So a week later, there in Jerusalem, He appears for the second time to the disciples gathered together. And specifically to T. Diddy. I got to use that a couple more times. That's just too good. Thomas, who's called Didymus, T. Diddy. So Jesus shows up there. By the way, John does not describe anywhere in his gospel the ascension of Jesus. He gives a beautiful accounting of the resurrection, but we don't see the ascension. The gospel ends with Jesus here meeting with the disciples in this third appearance. John leaves that to Luke, Luke chapter 24, Acts chapter 1, both covering in detail the ascension of Jesus, so we get to come back to that uh, either Sunday or next week, we'll see. But in this postscript testimony, John is clearly inspired to tell a story that needs to be heard. So after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So let's clarify here. Who's gathered together? Who's in this little group? Two unnamed disciples are there. I love that. How cool is that, that John mentions there are two other disciples. He doesn't give their names. Why not? Well, because the world is filled with followers of Jesus who never make a name for themselves. Followers that you're, you you wouldn't even know. Sometimes you run into someone at work, you've been working with them for a dozen years, and you find out they're a Christian. It's like, wow! <laughs> and isn't that encouraging when you do? My friends, the vast number of believers the last 2,000 years go unnamed, but for one name, the name of Christ. It is not for us to make a name for ourselves, to be known for who we are and what we've accomplished and what we've done. Oh, yeah, so and so or her or him, and they're 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 the great leaders. No, the great leaders are those who humble themselves. The great leaders are those whose names are forgotten, except for the name of Jesus. I love that Acts chapter eleven, verse twenty-six tells us the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And we've been called that ever since. And as far as I'm concerned, that name is good enough for me. So two unnamed disciples are there. We know the sons of Zebedee are there. That would be James and John. We know from the other Gospel writers, James and John, sons of Zebedee. John is, throughout this Gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That becomes even more clear in this very last chapter. He never once names himself. In fact, I think if John had his way, it probably would be three unnamed disciples were there along with one of the sons of Zebedee and on he would go. So James and John, two unnamed disciples, Nathanael is back. Nathanael's with them. Remember Nathanael. You've got to go all the way back to John chapter 1 when we heard Nathanael's story. We first met him in chapter 1, about verse 43, Long about him there. Remember the story? Jesus saw Nathanael under a fig tree. He tells Nathanael this, and Nathanael goes, My Lord and my God, you are the Messiah. Because you saw me under a tree? Because I saw you under... You know, it's... But there was more to that. And we talked about that, that that must have been, had to have been, a supernatural seeing because Nathanael was under the fig tree in Cana. And Jesus was probably in Capernaum, several miles of rocky hillside away. There's no way Jesus could have seen him. That's why. Nathanael was blown away. But I love that Nathanael is still here. He hasn't gone anywhere. Maybe, maybe Nathanael is Bartholomew. That's been thrown out there as a possibility because Bartholomew just means son of Tholomew. And maybe Nathanael is the first name. Maybe it's Nathanael Bartholomew. I don't know possibly, but we know Nathaniel Nathaniel is still here, and of course, T. Diddy is with them as well. Now, what I love about Thomas' part in this is that he missed out on the first resurrection appearance of Jesus, and as far as Thomas is concerned, I read this and I think, he's not going to miss anything else. He's going to be sure that he is wherever they are. Peter's going fishing, I'm going fishing, because the last time Peter was with a group of people, Jesus showed up and I wasn't there. I am not missing this again. And so here's the group rounded out with Simon Peter. Verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, We will also come with you. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Simon Peter was never one for standing still. Peter is always the first man to step out of the boat. He's the first one to rush into the tomb. And as we'll see in a minute, he's the first one to throw himself into the sea. Simon Peter does not hold back. If the Beatles had written him a song, it would not have been Dear Prudence. Because he had no prudence. I thought it was pretty good. His theme song would have been The theme of Jeopardy, we got to do something here, you know. That's Peter. The graduating class of Bethsaida High would not have voted him most likely to chill. (laughs) And after the second appearance of Jesus, as they made their way back to the Galilee to see him, I'm going to add a little imagination to the Scripture here, so just grant me that. It may not have happened this way, and yet I can't help but feel like Peter goes fishing because he doesn't know what to do with himself. Because minutes turn into hours, perhaps turn into days. And I saw Jesus. I know it was Him on Resurrection Sunday. We saw Him a week later when He showed up for Diddy. That's the last time I think I'll use (laughs) that. And we haven't seen him since. And think about this. If you saw Jesus crucified, if you saw him resurrected, and then you saw him a week later, wouldn't it feel like forever before you saw him again? Wouldn't you be counting the seconds? Are we going to see him? Is he going to show up? Where is he going to be? We got to the Galilee. He's not here. Where are you, Lord? In fact, you may have prayed that prayer in your own life. Where are you, Lord? I'm crying, I'm calling out, I'm looking for you. So here's Peter, and what does he do? He goes back to what he knows, which we do. He goes back to what he can control, back to the work of his hands. And that's exactly what I do when I find myself frustrated, And turn to the work of my hands when the Lord is not as expedient as I would like Him to be. Isaiah 30, verse 15, the Lord said, in repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 40, 31, yet those who wait... For the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Cheryl's having a hard time with that right now. That not walking and not becoming weary, not being able to do stuff. The doctors told her, no bending and no twisting. And what do I come home to find her doing? She's in the kitchen bending and twisting. (laughs) I say, go to your room. <laughs> we gotta work. We gotta do. We gotta keep it moving. You know, this church. We gotta keep it moving. What? What if we stop? What if we pause? What if we don't keep the energy up? Jesus said in John six twenty nine, "This is the work of God that you believe in Him, whom He has sent." And that is the hardest work of a disciple. Just quiet faith. Stopping. Praying. Taking it to the Lord. Waiting for Him to make the first move. But here's Peter. No doubt impatient, probably wearing a good amount of shame, which may have fed into the impatience. I've seen him and he said nothing about the denials. Not a word. Now I take that as grace. But I know my kids, when they know that they're in trouble, and... I'm going to say, I'll talk to you about it later on. If I want to drive Hayden absolutely berserk, that's what I say. I'll talk to you about it tomorrow. I mean, he he literally comes out of his skin. He's at my door every five minutes. How's it going, Dad? Fine, Hayden. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Okay. So Peter, he's got the, the shame aspect that has not been resolved. He's got the impatience that is just in his character. Jesus is back, He's alive, but it will never be the same. How could it be after what I've done? Peter might have thought. I wonder if Peter had forgotten what Jesus said before it all went down. Luke 22.31 Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, That your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Which says, you're going to turn. And not in the right direction. But when you turn it back around, strengthen your brothers. There's an expectation on Jesus' part of both a failure and a restoration. Peter's not thinking about that. He had yet to make the turn. So the old haunts are calling, the smell of the sea, the sound of the waves... Waves the, the grip of the nets, the things that he knows that he's comfortable with, and what's marvelous is that's okay, because Jesus knows Peter, and Jesus knows you. And sometimes when we go back to the work of our hands and we gotta get out ahead of the Lord and we start toiling and and stressing and sweating over stuff, I, I don't see God standing there going, "You idiot." <laughs> I hear him saying, alright, alright, let me, let me help you with that. And he so gently and he so tenderly takes the net out of my hands. Calls to me from the shore. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 4. But when day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find a catch. Of course, that's what you do. What fisherman in his right mind? Well, I imagine a lot of fishermen probably. I'm trying over here. Let's try this (laughs) up. Same lake, dudes. Same fish. If they're not biting left, they're not biting right. They're not Republicans, you know. (laughs) Maybe if we go right, we'll catch some. <laughs> so they cast, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. They go to the right, and it's a convention of fish. And they can't haul this thing. And Jesus right here repeats the scenario of Peter's calling. I love that. It's the exact same thing that happened back in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This is an absolute divine deja vu. Remember? They come in after fishing all night long. They haven't caught a thing. Same as here. Jesus says, hey, let's go fishing. Kind of same as here. Drop the nets. Same as here. They drop the nets. Remember what happens? Up all night, not a catch, but Jesus wants to fish. And in Luke 5, verse 8, when Simon Peter saw this miraculous catch of fish. When they couldn't hardly even get the net back into the boat, they had to drag it to shore. They had to get James and John and the other fishermen to jump in and and help out and pull this thing to shore. And Peter falls at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Jesus turns around and says, Do not fear. From now on, you're going to be catching men. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And now in the third resurrection appearance, the lessons begin. I call these lessons from the lakeside or truth with tilapia. Really whatever works for you. We will draw out five different truths from Jesus' work with Peter here. Number one. Lesson number one. And this for all disciples, we have got to learn the perseverance of a fisherman. The perseverance of a fisherman, and that is this. When you cast your net and get no catch, cast again. If you have been casting all night long, cast in the morning. If you cast left and catch nothing, cast right. Whatever you do, don't stop casting. Don't stop inviting. Don't stop asking. Don't stop sharing. If 25 people have turned down an invitation by you just to come with you to church on a Sunday, you ask number 26. The perseverance of a fisherman, you don't stop. If you are to be, if I am going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, perseverance is required. It is necessary. Now, we often think of perseverance in terms of tribulation or persecution. Hang in there when it gets tough. And let your perseverance through hard times have its maturing effect. And that's, that's true. That's absolutely true. But some of the persevering is exactly what Les prayed for, that we don't stop harvesting. That we don't leave the field just because we think that we're done. Hey, if we're here, we're not done. Perseverance is required. And Jesus promises in Revelation 3, verse 10, if you keep the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Rapture promise. If you will persevere, I'm going to take you home. I will pull you out. I will bring my ambassadors back before the tribulation begins. The perseverance of the Lord... It's not the same as the grunt work of the fishermen up all night, toiling at the nets. No, here is the perseverance of the saints, Revelation 14, 12, who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And i got to throw this in, regardless of what your culture does. Regardless of the way the world sways, you keep the commandments of God. And you keep your faith in Jesus. The perseverance of the saints is never about expediency. It's never about comfort. At its core, it is patience. It is endurance. It is faithfulness. It is staying at it. By the way, in the Gospels, you know there's not a single time when the disciples catch anything without Jesus. You won't find one story that they have a nice haul of fish and Jesus meets them on the shore. They're always catching nothing. I remember back in 2003 when I went out fishing with my friend and the day that I heard from the Lord, hey, what about planning a church on North Whidbey Island? And that day I caught nothing. Not a thing. Andrew's in the boat with me. He caught like three salmon. I'm like, so maybe it is better on the right side of the boat. I don't know. But God's purpose became very clear to me. It is not about fish. It is about people. And that's who I want you to catch. And that's going to be the focus. The perseverance of a fisherman. Verse 7, continuing on. Therefore... The disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, It's the Lord. He's the first one to know. I think that's cool. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So here's Forrest swimming, and here comes his boat. And in verse 9, so they got out on the land, and they saw a charcoal fire laid, and fish placed on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you now have caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Wow! There's so much theology here to unpack. So much taking place, but but don't miss this. What is the single purpose, above all others, for the Gospel of John? The single reason that he wrote this Gospel... That we might believe in the deity of Christ. That's what we've been coming back to again and again. Jesus is God. That sums up the whole of the Gospel of John. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Go back to chapter 1. Check it out. In fact, let's just start over. Right? John chapter 1. Check this out. He begins the whole thing. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, there ain't no fish without Jesus on the shore. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. He starts the gospel that way. Down in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Down in verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father He has explained Him. Jesus is God. The purpose of the whole thing now go back to chapter 21. Some things you got to catch in this net full of fish. The reason that John is so specific, he comes up and he says there were a large number of fish, 153. 153. Now anytime you see something that specifically listed, you ought to pause and go, Why? What's that there for? What does that mean? Some of you Bible students know where I'm going. If you don't, you're going to have your mind blown in about 30 seconds here. But let me give you some additional information maybe you hadn't heard before. First of all, some have added up in the Gospels 48 separate accounts in which exactly 153 people were healed or blessed by contact with Jesus. 153. What's even more interesting to me is if you go to the book of Genesis and track down the Tetragrammaton, that is the use of the name Yahweh, it is in the book of Genesis exactly 153 times. God, 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 and here there's a miraculous catch of 153 fish as if Jesus is going, (laughs) oh yeah, I am who I am. But the thing that just blows my mind, and I've actually shared it with you all before, is in Hebrew, every letter is a number. And when you apply that simple Hebrew numerics, and I'm not talking uh, gematria, or gematria, which is assigning uh, numbers to numerals. It's kind of uh, a different, it's very big in Kabbalah and that kind of thing. I'm going to talk about that. I'm just talking about simple counting. Because in the Hebrew, as with the Greek language, the letters are the numbers. And the numbers are the letters. And so if you just take the letters and apply these Hebrew numbers that the letters stand for, 153 spells out in Hebrew, Ani Elohim, I am God. I am God. 153 fish. Whatever the case, I remind you this epilogue as with the entire gospel, is not about Peter, it's not about James and John, it's not about Nathaniel or the sons of Zebedee or T. Diddy or anyone else. Had to do it one more time. It's not about any of those guys. It is about Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he's about. And what he does. And personally, in this story, what he is about to do with Peter. Jesus. Ani Elohim. He's the one who gives the power. The power to persevere. But did you catch in this story, in what's already happened, what else is going on here? Look again. Verse 9. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. There's already fish in the fryer. There's already freshly baked bread on the plate. They don't even need the fish they just caught. Jesus has it for them. He's already got breakfast laid out and good to go. Remember the 5,000? Bread and fish. Remember the 4,000 that He miraculously fed? Bread and fish. Second lesson from the lakeside. The provision of Christ. Disciples of Jesus never forget the provision of Christ. He does not need you to catch any fish. He invites you, though, to bring what you've caught. doesn't need you to. As we'll see, once the church is pulled out of here, what the Bible indicates in the seven-year tribulation... Without the help of the church, a massive salvation of souls, perhaps bigger than anything we have ever seen before, and the church ain't even there. He doesn't need us, but He invites us to bring what we've caught. He doesn't need us to roll up our sleeves and bake bread. He invites us no, to break bread in His name and to fellowship because His provision is all the provision we need Don't ever forget that. Because one of the things that trips up a follower of Jesus, a disciple, is when we run a little short. When there's not as much in the cupboard. When the checkbook is at the end. When the payments are not coming through. When we're out of funds or out of resources. And we begin to stress and we begin to worry. And His provision is all you will ever need. The provision of Christ. By the way, note this also. The net was not torn. Which tells us not a single fish that was caught was lost. He knows how to keep that which is caught. He knows how to get it to shore. He knows how to save. The veil was torn, but the net was not. Because Jesus holds on to what He catches. Verse 12. I'm sure there's more you can pull out of there and please email me. Verse 12. Jesus said to them, Come have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question Him, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. Oh, okay, so now He's serving them. He's waiting on them. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after He was raised from the dead. Now, it seems like they couldn't tell who He was just by looking at Him. Otherwise, John wouldn't have added that phrase, none of them dared ask who He was. They knew. They knew who He was, but looking at Him, John indicates that they must have been thinking, at least John was thinking, I kind of want to say, is it You, Lord? Now, why wouldn't they know who He is? Why wouldn't they just recognize Him? Now, I studied this out. And I can tell you with absolute assurance, I have no idea. (laughs) Maybe they couldn't look him in the eye, and that's a possibility. Maybe they all were churning like Peter was, and, you know, like when the uh, conversation with my son finally does happen, then it's like, I don't even want to look at you at all, Dad. You know, maybe that was it perhaps they were still grappling with this whole idea of the resurrection and it was so overwhelming for him for each of them that they weren't looking up but what we do know what John tells us absolutely is every one of these guys knew that they knew that they knew it was the Lord this is the Lord this is God in the flesh and what does he say in this glorious resurrected state come have breakfast that is so cool you know, it's the most important meal of the day. And he says, come have breakfast. The word for breakfast there, some of your translations say, come and dine. And that would be accurate as well. The word breakfast, eristao, in the Greek, literally is to dine or to share a meal. And it's just the word that they would use anytime time they were going to eat to break the fast from the previous meal. So when he says this, he says, come, come, and, come and dine, come and have breakfast. Let's, let's eat, guys. Jesus is always looking for a meal. And we've talked about how in all the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, nine times out of ten, he's like, you guys got a burger? You know, is there some fish here? I'd love to talk about this, but let's go to In-N-Out and let's do it there. You know, he's always having a meal with them. Which, in the Middle East, is the most intimate fellowship people can share. You want to receive someone into your home, into your heart, you have a meal with them. You break bread with them. And here is Jesus, this resurrected deity cooking up a Messianic breakfast on the seashore. Now, I I want you to grapple with this for a moment. This Jesus who's serving up fish and bread around the fire. Did you get enough, Peter? You know, passing it around. John, take some more. This Jesus is the same one the Scriptures tell us, Job 41, verse 1, draws out Leviathan on a fish hook. This is the Creator God. This is the one Jake was telling me earlier. One of the one of the kids was watching the Louis Giglio um, video. Some of you have seen that. What's it called? The How... Like how great our God is our God Something like anyway it's the one that talks about the heavens and, and the glory and the grandeur and the might and the, the wonder of who God is, and Jake had shown this to the kids, and one of the kids at the end of it came up to him kind of shaking a little bit going, "That freaks me out. How big, how great how I just, I, I'm, that really scares me." I said, Jake, have him read John 21." The same God that draws Leviathan out with a fish hook serves fish to his friends. It says, come have breakfast. Now he's got fish oil and flour on his hands. It's who he is. This is who he is. And perhaps one of the most mind boggling things about Jesus is he is on earth as he is in heaven. For all the glory and the grandeur and the wonder of who He is, He by nature serves. It's what He loves to do. He by nature invites. He by nature says, want to grab a burger? That's just who He is. He's not different there than He is here. It's not like He he has now returned to heaven and He's sitting on the throne, oh, bring me something. The Bible says, Jesus Himself said, you know what? In that last day, when we're all together, we're going to gather around the table and the Son of Man will serve you. Not because He has to, but because He loves to. By the way, those of you among us servants, and you know who you are. I know who you are. You are so like Jesus. When you drop off a meal at someone's house... And once again, here we are getting meals at my house because when Cheryl's down, no one's going to eat my cooking. (laughs) You are so like Jesus when you serve. It's just amazing. God bless you, servants. We're all called to be that way. Well, the provision of Christ, whether in heaven or on earth, no one is more inviting than He is. In fact, if you go back again to the outset of the Gospel of John, He's asked by Andrew and another uh, disciple of John the Baptist. They come up to Jesus. John one thirty-seven. they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? And what's his answer? Come and see. Where are you staying? Or I'm sorry, I don't give out my address. Give me your number, I'll text you. Come and see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. No one's more inviting than Jesus. On the last day of Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, in the middle of the story of the Gospel of John, Jesus gives another invitation. John 7.37, He cries out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. Come and see where I'm staying. Come to Me and drink. And here He says, Come have breakfast. John will tell us later on in Revelation 3 verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And I have no doubt that as Jesus stands on the door and knock and we open the door, he is standing there with bread and fish. Cooked up and ready to go. He's not expecting you to make the meal. He's got it. He's so inviting. And nobody serves up a better meal than Jesus. But listen, there, there's something else that He said. Luke 12.23, Jesus said, Life is more than food. Life is more than food. Paul said in Romans 14.17, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so this is more than a story of breakfast. Jesus is about to move on restoration. Restoration. In this casual, calm, relaxed environment, he gets the guys eating, he gets them, gets them settled down, so they're not all freaked out about the resurrection, and he goes in for the restoration. Peter's righteousness, Peter's peace, and Peter's joy. Verse 15, So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Actually, it's Simon, son of Jonah. I think that's really interesting. Simon Peter's dad's name was Jonah. Someday I'm going to study this out and do a teaching and think about the parallels between Jonah and Peter, at least in this season of his life. But Simon, son of John, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Interesting that Jesus doesn't call him Peter here. He calls him Simon. He's back to Simon. Why does he call him Simon? Because Peter's acting like Simon. Because Peter's sliding a bit here. Simon, shifting sand is what that name means. And he's back to fishing. And he's ignoring the calling. He's out on the boat. Now Jesus doesn't get onto him. Doesn't yell at Him. Doesn't undermine Him. Doesn't shake the finger at Him. What are you out fishing for? In fact, at the end of Matthew, Jesus had told them, I'm going to meet you on a mountain in Galilee. This is nothing about meeting him on the sea. That's the last place that Jesus said He would meet them. And yet, Simon gets in the boat and goes out fishing, just like Jonah gets in the boat and heads in the opposite direction. I think there's evidence of maybe just faith is failing a bit. Well, Jesus now says, Simon... Do you love me more than these? These what? The fish? I mean, there's 153 of them flopping around on the shore. So that's possible. No, it actually is possible. Simon, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than your previous job? Do you love me more than the profession you are so comfortable with? Do you love me more than the security of a, of a fisherman's paycheck? Do you love me more than these? He could be saying that. Now, more likely, he means James, John, Nathaniel, and T. Diddy. That's the last time. (laughs) Jesus is saying, and I, I think that this is the emphasis, Do you love me more than these? Simon, do you love me more than these? What's going on here? He's taking them back. Before the failure. Before the denials. Where Jesus had said in Matthew 26.32, After I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to Him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Obviously, I love you more than any of these guys. I'm your man. Simon, do you love me more than these? And here in John 21, by a crackling fire, just like the one in the courtyard of Caiaphas' house, Jesus says, Do you love me more than these? And Peter cannot give a straight answer. He said to him, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. he said to him, Shepherd my sheep. You Bible students know the first two times that Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, he asks using the word agape unconditionally. Peter, do you agape me? Verse 15, verse 16, agapao is the word in the Greek. It's that word for unconditional love. And both times, Peter cannot get there. Both times, Peter responds, you know I love you. And he uses the word phileo, where we get Philadelphia or brotherly love. Ah, Jesus, you know I got mad bro love for you. I got that going on. You know, my bro. Of course, I love you like a brother. But unconditional love wouldn't deny a loved one, would it? So, Peter speaking, I can't say I love him unconditionally because obviously I don't. Obviously, I didn't, or I would have been crucified too. So no, I can't say that. Man, I love him like a brother, but not unconditionally. Verse seventeen. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. The third time, Peter is now grieved. I used to read this and assume he was grieved because of the repetition Do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? Come on! I said I loved you! Why do you keep bringing this up? Why do you keep driving it in? Is it frustration over this growing repetition? Or is it something else that grieves Peter? Many of you know there's a parallel here. Jesus is gently restoring Peter to a right standing in ministry, three invitations to love, three denials, three opportunities of restoration to ministry, three failures. So as if for each one of the failures, Jesus now comes back around and gives Peter the opportunity to have it washed away. So what is grieving Peter? And it's the third lakeside lesson. I would call it the persistence of love. But it may not be what you think. The persistence of love. That Jesus persists, yes He does, in asking Simon Peter, do you love Me? He keeps pushing the point. So He's persisting in that. But it's more than that. The loving kindness of God can be hard to take when you know you don't deserve it. And many of you have been there. Some of you may be there. You think about how you're living your life, and then you come and you hear about this graceful Jesus who loves you unconditionally, and you think, it doesn't work. I don't deserve that. And sometimes, in that lack of deserving, we sabotage ourselves. We just keep doing to prove that we don't deserve, keep sinning, keep turning away from the Lord. And yet, the loving kindness of God, Paul says in Romans 2:4, do you think lightly? Of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. And ultimately we just break. Because you can't out-sin the love of God. You cannot sin enough to cancel out His grace. Best thing to do is just stop sinning. Come to the realization. Turn around and walk with Him. Because you can't out His grace. But what I think grieves Peter the most in this persistence of the love of Jesus is that the third time, Jesus loves him so much that Jesus changes His Word to meet Peter where He is. Because the third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me like a bro? He changes to philetto. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you like a brother. And here's the persistence of love. The persistence of love is Jesus saying, fair enough, you don't love me unconditionally right now, but you will love me like a brother, okay, I'll take that. For now, let's start right there. You don't have the same passion for me that I have for you right now. That's okay. It'll come. Let's just start where you are. If all you can give is brotherly love, I'll take it. That is the persistence of love. A love that persists even when it is not reciprocated the way it's given. The love of Jesus... Can you say here honestly tonight that you love Jesus without hesitation, reservation, or conditional or condition? You love him unconditionally. Can you say that? Some can. Others think based on this week? <laughs> I wish you'd ask me last week, because yeah, last week was all kinds of unconditional. This week is more brotherly. And yet, Jesus is still here saying, okay, I'll take it. What we need to know is that Jesus intends to take us into the unconditional. That He may accept your brotherly love for Him, your even religious love, Ooh, but He may you know, even accept that at first, but he is going to draw you into the unconditional, into the place where you would do anything and everything for him, because he's done anything and everything already for you. He wants to take you there. That's the end game, unconditional love gang. And Peter got there. Peter got there. First Peter chapter one, verse 22, he said, "Since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren." Philadelphia love. Peter says, Now fervently love one another from the heart. Agape. Unconditional love. But something else is happening alongside this persistence of love. As Jesus persists in drawing Peter out into the unconditional, He is also calling on the fishermen to change professions. As he says in three separate instances here, he says, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. He doesn't say, go back out there and catch some more fish. Not to Peter. He wants to make the fisherman a shepherd. He wants to change the whole thing. Lakeside lesson number four, he wants Peter to know and to learn and to walk out the patience of a shepherd. Tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep. Tend my sheep. The patience of a shepherd. That's our Lord. He's got the patience of a shepherd. Micah 7.14 Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession, which dwells by itself in the woodland, in the midst of a fruitful field. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Oh God, shepherd your people, Israel. Our God is a shepherd at heart. Old Jacob knew that. He knew that divine characteristic. And so as he's blessing his son Joseph in Genesis 48, verse 15, he says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, He is the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. An old wily Jacob. And yet he knows that every step of the way God had been His shepherd. God's got a thing about shepherds. He sends Moses for 40 years of training in the wilderness at the sheepfolds of Midian so that when he comes back, he might be a shepherd for his people Israel. He raised David in the, sheep, the shepherd fields of, of Bethlehem among the sheep, with the sheep, tending the sheep, that he might become a shepherd king for his people Israel. Psalm 78, 70, He chose David His servant, took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd his, Jacob, His people, Israel, His inheritance. And now Jesus is doing the same thing. Jesus is calling the fishermen to develop the patience of a shepherd. And this is what it looks like. He says three things. He says, Tend my lambs. Do you love me, Peter? Yeah, I I'm not quite there, but yeah, I love you as much as I can right now. Tend my lambs. The word tend, probably better translated feed. It's the word bosco in the Greek. It's not to feed a chocolate drink. It's feed (laughs) my lambs. Those of you who know what bosco is. That's the word. Feed my lambs. And my friends, that is where the patience starts. Feed the lambs. Get a picture in your mind of this fuzzy little lamb... And you're giving it, your bottle feeding it. You know, and it's sucking on the bottle, you've got this cute little lamb. If you love me, the Lord would say, disciples tonight, if you love me, even if you only love me to a degree, feed my lambs. Man, if that's not a great verse for signing up for children's ministry, I'm not sure what is. <laughs> feed my lambs. You don't shove steak down their gullets. You're gonna eat this, you know? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Peter writes like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Feed my lambs. Feed my little ones. Feed the newbies. We will always at the bridge fellowship if we are shepherds like the Lord has called us to be, if we are following Jesus the way He has called us to be disciples, we will always at this fellowship have lambs that we need to feed. And I'm not just talking about Josh knocking over his cup. (laughs) I'm talking about... (laughs) Timing. I'm talking about more than the children. I'm not just talking we will always have children, and we will, and we should, and we want to tend to them, but we will always have brand new believers in Jesus who don't have a clue what it's all about. They just know they're falling in love with Jesus. That's cool. What's our responsibility to them? Feed the lambs. Feed them. Now, hear me carefully on this, because some have taken Peter's words, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word. Some have taken that and they've said, that means we got to be really careful what we feed a new believer. Let's just make sure we give them little bite-sized pieces. You know, Let's add water, mash it up, and put it in a Gerber jar. Let's make it as edible as possible. The last thing you want in this church is on a Sunday morning for someone who's brand new in faith to have to come and listen to Rick for an hour talking about Zechariah and Israel and big stuff. Don't do that. Make sure you make it easy for them. I couldn't agree less. There's something magnificent, something wonderful about the Word of God. And here's the deal. A brand new baby believer can sit in the same hour-long Bible study as a 40-year veteran of the faith. And the new believer is going to get milk. And the veteran of the faith is going to chew on some serious meat. It's not what the teacher does. It's what the Spirit does. It's how the Word works, and it is absolutely marvelous, and I've seen it again and again. Sunday nights, prior to the bridge, we did a thing called In the Book over in Anacortes. And it was a in-depth, verse-by-verse, through the Bible study. And it was intended to be discipleship-level teaching. For those who want to go deeper in their faith, this was my mentality going into it. We're going to really dig in. Put the invitation out there. We had people coming from different churches around Anacortes and, and originally met in the old Fidalgo Bay Roasting Company coffee house. Sunday night, people would show up and kind of sit down. 11, 12, 13 people at first and then 20 people and then 60 people and we had to move. It was great. But here's what I didn't expect. People started getting saved. Hank Sakinga. A lot of you guys remember Hank, the gentle giant who played the most amazing acoustic guitar I've ever heard. Went home to be with the Lord. How many years ago now? Two, three years? Longer? Six. I have no concept of time, and I don't know who's here tonight. That's just the way it is. <laughs> A while ago, he went home to glory. Hank started coming to that Bible study. Hank was not at that point a believer. He had just been invited by Mark and Susan Harris. Hey, come with us. So, Hank, his wife Cindy, they they started coming. You know when they came the first night? was when we first opened up Daniel chapter (laughs) 1. We studied our way through the prophecies of Daniel. We went from there to the book of Revelation and studied our way through Revelation and about halfway through Revelation, Hank, who was guzzling by that time milk and starting to sample some of the meat, got saved. I'll never forget it because I baptized him out in Bowman's Bay in March and still don't have feeling in three of my toes. Gang, the Word of God and the Spirit of God feed the way we need to be fed. My job is just put it out there. And for some, on the table, there's milk. Pure, sweet, good milk. For others, there's a juicy steak to carve into and eat and and to feed on. It wasn't steak on a high chair for Hank. You know, it was... It was the pure milk of the Word that He needed and the Spirit made sure that's what He got. And I would to this day start a brand new believer on the book of Revelation. No problem. Wouldn't bother me in the least. Great place to start. Let's see Jesus in all of His glory. Tend my lambs. Just feed them. You feed the little ones and they're going to grow up strong. Secondly, He says, shepherd my sheep. The word shepherd there, note this, shepherd is poimano. And poimano means pastor that's the word that we use for pastor we translate it pastor now notice this they're no longer little lambs they're sheep so first you you feed the lambs now you pastor the sheep they've grown up you fed the lambs you pastor the sheep they're able to produce things full grown sheep they can produce milk they can produce wool they can produce little sheep so now they're bringing others along But the full-grown sheep are also apt to wander. They from time to time need protection. They need care. They need direction. They need shepherding. I need shepherding. You know what they don't need? They don't need bosses. They don't need a church leadership. They don't need a board of elders. Any shepherds? Any guys who smell like sheep? Guys who are around sheep? Guys who tend sheep? They don't need a heavy-handed, lord-it-over mentality. You see, because the flock of God already has a boss. But the flock needs pastoring. Shepherding. I find it interesting. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 8, Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. So don't call me Rabbi Rick. I don't like it. Stop it. Don't call me teacher. Call me brother, that's cool. Mad bro love. That's alright. He says, do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders. For one is your leader that is Christ, that the greatest among you shall be your servant. Listen, this is why we call our guys here shepherds. Let me be clear about this. It is not to define you all as sheep. That's not the point. When they're shepherds, that means I'm a sheep and that's a bad idea. <laughs> the whole reason we call our guys shepherds is not to define you, it's to define them. And so that they know, so that I know, so that we think in terms of shepherding, which is serving, which is smelling like sheep, which is caring and nurturing and protecting and leading to good pasture, that's what a shepherd does. He doesn't sit in a meeting and go, now, we purchased the right kind of carpet. Let's run those numbers one more time. That's not a shepherd. Yeah, we got to run the numbers, and we got to do the... I get that. We got to finish this kitchen, the kitchen eventually. <laughs> we will. But that's not the role of the shepherd, and that is not the call of anyone who is following after Jesus. And by the way, you don't have to be a shepherd in the church. We're all called to be shepherd leaders, shepherding the little flock at home, shepherding in the workplace, shepherding friends into the direction toward the pasture of Jesus Christ. Shepherding. And that's what he says. Look, disciples, feed the lambs. Take care of the little ones, the newbies, the children, those who need the feeding. Make sure you feed them and shepherd my sheep. And thirdly, he says, verse 17, tend my sheep. And we're right back to where we started. Tend is Bosco feed. Feed my sheep. What does that tell us? That the most mature sheep still need to eat well. Still need to be in the Word. You will not come to a point in your discipleship where you've had enough Bible. Ever. And mark this, if you ever sit there and think, yeah, I'm good. I've had enough. I've, I've been through the Bible, you know, once or twice. I, I'm, I'm good. I don't need more Bible right now. Yes, you do. In fact, when you say you don't need more Bible, it's probably the time you need more than you have any idea that you need. We keep feeding. We keep being tended by the word, feed my sheep. The Hebrew writer, I believe Paul, says in Hebrews 5.13, everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And by the way, that does not contradict what Peter said in 1 Peter 2, where he said, long for the pure milk of the word. Listen, it doesn't contradict it at all. Peter, in his letter, is describing the pure word as milk. Paul is describing the disciple who is puerile, infantile, and needs to grow up. One is the Word that is always milk for the new believer, as well as it is always meat for the mature. The Word. And yet the disciples can be infantile. What's great is, as I said before, the Word meets you right where you are. If you need milk, the Word is milk. If you need meat, the Word is meat. And ultimately, as you drink in the milk of the Word, digest the meat of the Word, it becomes in you, Psalm 19.10, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Psalm 119.103, How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So in this divine encounter with the resurrected Christ, Peter begins to change. And he never forgot it. He, he would forever define true leadership, true eldering, true oversight, in terms of, Of shepherding. Let me just read this to you quickly. 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I believe Peter would forever think of Jesus as the chief shepherd who on this day began to turn him away from the Sea of Galilee and to the shepherding of the sheep in Jerusalem. One final lesson from the lakeside as we close out now the Gospel according to John. Just give me two more minutes. For so. Verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus speaking, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, this he said, John gives commentary, signifying by what kind of death he, Peter, would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Same thing he said. Same thing he said at the first calling of Peter. Follow me. Follow me, Peter. And Peter did right to his own cross. Tradition tells us Peter was crucified in Rome. Fox's Book of Martyrs says he was crucified upside down because he didn't find himself or think himself worthy to be crucified in the way that Jesus was. I don't know if that's truth or it was just a, a story. But he followed Jesus right to the cross. He was, as a grown man, bound. He was girded with his own cross. And he died just like Jesus. And by the way, we spend all of our young lives growing up to be independent, to do what we want to do, to be who we want to be. And ultimately what Jesus would say to you and to me is, Hey, follow me. When you were young, you did what you wanted. But as you mature as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you will not necessarily do what you want to do. You will do what He wants you to do. You will go where He calls you to go. Independence is not the name of the game for the follower of Jesus. Discipleship is. Follow me, he says. Verse 20, Peter turning around saw, or literally sees, the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper said... Lord, is this the one who betrays you? Now that right there is how we know that the disciple whom Jesus loved is John throughout the entire book because John is the one who leaned back against Jesus. And so right here, he clarifies that. He sees John following them. And so Peter, verse 21, seeing him said to Jesus, says to Jesus, Lord, what about him? (laughs) What about this man? What about Johannan?" Jesus said to him, If I want Him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow Me. Therefore, this saying, and John adds this as a final clarification in his Gospel. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. That is how rumors get started right there. The disciple would not die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? Now, this is important. John has to mention this because there is a rumor going around the early church. And the rumor was not only that John would not die, but that Jesus would come before John died. And so people were kind of placing that... John was the original blood moon. (laughs) He was the sign. John's still with us. He's tottering, but he's with us. You know, he's not quite in his right mind. He just keeps telling us to love each other. I don't know what that's about, but he's he's still here. And as long as John is here, Jesus isn't coming. But but before John dies, Jesus is going to come. They all believe this. And John right here writes for the whole church, that is not what he said. All He said was, if I want Him to remain until I come, what is that to you? And by the way, John did remain until Jesus came in the revelation. John saw what you and I have yet to see. John saw 2,000 years ago in that grand and glorious vision of Jesus and Jesus' second coming to the earth. So John did see Him in His glory, coming before John died. But they wouldn't have understood that. And John's making it clear right here, that's not the point of this. The point is, John sets the record straight while reminding us of the fifth Lakeside lesson, final one, and that is, please get this, the peculiarity of every disciple. The peculiarity of every disciple We are all called to persevere as fishers of men. We are all called to trust in the provision of Christ. Every one of us to grow in the persistence of His love with the patience of shepherds. But for all the similarity of our calling, we are peculiar. We're weird. In that we are all different. We are not the same. Every life will not go the same way. Every experience will not be the same. We will not all come to the, to the same end, at least in this life. Some will die. Some will be alive when he comes. Some will be highly successful in a good way. Others will never be known by name. Some will rise, some will fall. We're not the same in the experiences of our lives. Don't suffer by comparison don't look at fellow brothers and sisters and say if I only was more like her well he has it so good why does he get the, why do I have to man that is, that is not the talk of a disciple you know what Jesus says what is that to you well Glenn and Kathy they just got a new house down here in Old Co- what is that to you Have you seen the house? I mean, no, I'm kidding. I I, I haven't even seen it. I haven't even been there yet. Time for a little breakfast, (laughs) Flynn. Don't look around at other believers. Well, why does she have to go through such a painful, hard time? Well, I've learned not to ask that question. Don't suffer by comparison. Jesus clearly, authoritatively says two things. What is that to you? It's none of your business. I think more spiritually, he would have said, none of your beeswax. <laughs> but then he says, and this is the key, you follow me. You, Peter, doesn't matter what I do with John. You follow me. And that is the call of the disciple of Jesus. Verse 24. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. There is no library big enough, John says, to contain Jesus. Lord, we thank You that You have given us this little library, this 66-book library. Your word, we thank you for entrusting it to us. For John's latter perspective, for the way that your spirit illuminated through him this glorious truth of the deity of Jesus. Father, I am so amazed that we end this gospel with the most profound statement Ani Elohim, I am God. And the most intimate of circumstances, fish and bread around the fire. Lord, I still have so much to learn about you. But I am grateful for your constant invitation. And when it's all said and done, help us, Lord, simply to follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.